Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Could you hear me, my Well, we are continuing our fall sermon series on John's Gospel, and we have arrived at chapter 2, where we read in the Gospel of Jesus' first sign or first miracle. And uh, for some of you, you've been to weddings or marriage ceremonies in the Anglican tradition or in the Episcopal Church, and you've heard this at the very beginning of the wedding ceremony. Dearly beloved, we have come together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation, and our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's his first miracle. But really, in many ways, if you heard it, It was God's idea at creation to create marriage or having weddings in the first place. And see, Jesus was involved in creation at the beginning, as we heard about in the last two sermons from John chapter 1. And now here we are in John chapter 2, and he's involved in this wedding. And it's where he does his first miracle. And it's interesting also that this is a creation miracle. Miracle of sorts, because he takes something in creation and he does something wonderful with it, something that was plain and common. And really, if you understand the jars and what was put in the jars, the water for the rites of purification, something that wasn't really the best jars, and he makes something wonderful with it, and in fact, we're told the best out of it, that it shows his power. His power over creation. That John in chapter 1 established his power in creation, involved in creation as God's word, active. And now he shows his first miracle in creation, and abundance, and wonderful. And you know the reality is, is that God has always provided enough, if not abundance, in creation. But we don't always see it. And the reason is not that there isn't enough there. The reason is really distribution. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I think it was Ron Sider who wrote, you know, there's plenty of food and drink in creation. The problem is not, is there enough? The problem is with distribution. You ever heard that? And it's true. Take, for example the Old Testament reading that we have before us in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because in Deuteronomy, what's happening is Moses is summarizing what has happened for the last 40 years. And what he's basically doing in this summary document, this covenant document, as their 40 years of wandering is coming to an end, you see him making the point of saying, God has provided manna for you 
for 40 years. Bread and water. And you have had enough. You've had enough bread. You've had enough water. You've had more than enough quail. In fact, at one point you stuffed yourself. You've had plenty. And in fact, not only in chapter 8, but the point is also made in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy towards the end of the five books of Moses. Is that not only did you have enough bread and wine, but the clothes on your back for 40 years because of God's provision and protection, for 40 years the clothes on your back never wore out. I have clothes that I've had for 40 years. Much to Meredith's chagrin, I still have clothes that I've had over 40 years. How many in here can say that? They're not all the same. But the Israelites had the same clothes for 40 years. They didn't stop along the way and shop. Same sandals. Didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. Walking in the desert. God protecting them. And we're told early in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, that once they got to the promised land, the manna stopped. Why? They didn't need it anymore. And we're told here in Deuteronomy, not only that, that when they did get to the promised land, what did they have? A land flowing with milk and honey and there was abundance and it was incredible and they had all this stuff. And wine. And it was incredible because they weren't used to it. They were slaves. And then they wandered for 40 years. And all they had was bread and water and quail occasionally. Not a whole lot of variety. And now they have this abundance. And what happens? What happens once they get to the promised land? Is there's poor people and hungry people in the land of abundance. Why? Because God was in charge of distribution before. Interesting. When God was in charge of distribution, everybody had enough. When people take over, there's greed and there's sin and there's corruption and there's oppression. And there's abuse. See, when the world takes over, it's amazing how it doesn't take long for people to get lulled and for people to fall away from the Lord and do it their own way. It doesn't take long. It's not that there wasn't enough. They went into a land of abundance, but they strayed. Now hold that thought, because I want to fast forward to the wedding at Cana. The wedding at Cana took place not too far from where Jesus was raised, not too far from where Jesus would make his home. Because he was raised in Nazareth, one part of Galilee, and we are told in Matthew chapter 4 that he would eventually make his home in Capernaum. 
And so Cana was somewhere in between, and we're not exactly sure at this point where his home was, either Nazareth or Capernaum, but we know it was in that general vicinity. We also know that Mary, Jesus' mother, was apparently known to this family because she got involved. She was either a relative or she was a wedding planner. But she got involved. Not only that, it's incredible how many people would be there if you think about it. Because when people got married during this time, it wasn't just the relatives that were invited. And there would be a lot of relatives. But you would probably invite the whole town because everybody knows each other in these towns. And then it would be maybe some of the relatives of them. And then if some of the relatives are in town, they would be invited. And then some of the friends. That's how Jesus... Not only was Jesus invited, either he was the son of the wedding planner or son of a relative, but then he was there, as we're told, this happened on the third day. Did you catch that? On the third day. Well, he was just with Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Nathaniel. That happened on the next day, which was the second day. And so there's six fishermen there with Jesus. What do you know about fishermen? They can eat and they can drink. Okay, that's what you know about fishermen. So they're with Jesus, too. So there's this whole crowd there. And it's a huge affair. And it happens for a week. Now, I don't know how many of you have been involved in wedding planning of sorts. I get involved in a variety of ways. Most recently, it's because my son Aaron's getting married next summer. The wedding list. Oh, my goodness. Fortunately, because it's a son, we're not paying for the wedding. She, that is his fiancée, Morgan, who is wonderful, has 120 relatives. Just relatives. Just her side. Thank God I'm not paying for this wedding. But, I mean, just picture it. We've not landed exactly on how many are going to be at this wedding, but this is one night. Jesus' day, it's a week. Food and drink. And you're not exactly sure how many people are coming. It's amazing how many people are there. So that's the scene. That's the scene. So Jesus, we are told, was there with his apostles, and all these people are there, and that it's not long because Jesus is there with his fishermen friends, that they are running out of wine. They're running out of wine. And so Mary, being the good Jewish mother that she is, whether she's a relative, whether she's the wedding planner, she gets involved in the situation. You know, because of her care of the situation, she wants to get involved. Now, how many here have ever seen my big, fat Greek wedding? Right? Most of you have seen my big, fat Greek wedding. Well, I have to tell you, just from personal experience, I understand how this works. Because when Meredith and I got married, you know, 
in, in the big fat Greek wedding, it was the bride's family that was the Greeks, you know, and they wanted the big wedding and all that, and the groom's family wanted it nice and small and very calm and everything, and it ended up being the big fat Greek wedding. Well, see, my mom is 100% Italian. Meredith's family would be more like the groom's family. And my mom said, we've got this. We'll take care of the whole thing. We'll even pay for it because we're going to have a big wedding. So my mom was kind of like the Italian or Jewish mother. And she wanted to plan everything. We had to sometimes get involved in a little bit of minor conflict to make sure it all didn't happen my mother's way. But mom, Mary, got involved with the wedding because she wanted to make sure everything was going well because she cared about the couple and she cared about everything going well. Something's going on. Anyway. Mary said, I don't, want to, I don't want this couple to be embarrassed. I don't want her family to be embarrassed because it would be a huge embarrassment. Ancient Near East rules of hospitality. The rules of hospitality are not only do you invite everybody, but you make sure everybody has everything they want and need. That there would be enough food, that there would be enough drink. And so Mary decides she's going to get involved. Being the good Jewish mother, being maybe the good Jewish wedding planner. So she says, Jesus, I want you to get involved. And Jesus Jesus says, Mom, it's really not my time. See, my mom would have probably done something like that to me. You know, I think Jewish mothers, Greek mothers, Italian mothers all have that. Maybe it's in the Mediterranean Sea air, you know. They all have that thing where they want their sons to help fix situations. But Jesus, she also knows, is the son of God. So she knows he can do something about it. So she says, Jesus, you got to help out here. you got to do something here. And even though he says, my, my time has not yet come, he cares enough to do something. So there's six stone jars, these huge jars holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, these are not the nice serving jars, okay? These are not the the ones that you would bring the good food or the good drink in. These are the ones that you would use for washing. These are the ones that maybe Jesus would draw water for washing feet. These are not the nice jars. So Jesus says, fill them to the brim with water. So I just want to do a little math with you just for a second. 20 to 30 gallons times 6. 120 to 150. 180. 180 gallons of wine. 120 to 180 gallons of wine. How many fifths would that be? Yeah, it'd be like 600, 900, 
1,200 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a lot of wine that Jesus is about to make. It's an abundance. But he takes something that is mundane, that is not pure. And you have to picture, see, and it's hard for us to do this because we know the miracle and our minds rush to the end. But you have to imagine what everybody around the room is doing at this point who's in the know. Jesus' mother is totally confident in her son. Jesus is totally confident. What do you think everybody else is doing who knows what's going on? Why do you think in your reading John puts in parenthesis, but the guy who drew it knew where the water came from? You have to understand, everybody who's watching this is saying, what is he thinking? He's taking it to the wine steward. You know, the wine steward is the guy in the white tux who's making sure everything is being done properly. I mean, besides the wedding planner, he's the guy. And there are people around that room right now who are snickering, who think it's a bad joke, who are afraid heads are going to roll. And the guy who's bringing the cup of water out of that jar is probably shaking in his boots. You need to understand what's going on here. There's only two people that have any confidence that this is going to turn out well. And Jesus turns the water into wine. And it's not only wine, it's abundance, and it's the best. It's the best wine. Now, see, we need to understand that up to this point, the wine steward states exactly what's going on. That everybody at this point, what happens after days and days of drinking and days of days of eating good food? What happens to your taste buds? They're dull. And some people are drunk. And so at this point, the wine steward says, you know, at this point, nobody can taste whether this wine is going to be really bad wine. You know, Jesus probably could have turned it into Boone's Farm. Or Mad Dog 2020. And no one really would have cared that much. The reality is, he turned it into the best. See, the, when, when we are like the world... Over time, because we buy into the way of the world, because we eat, drink, and be merry, our senses can be dulled, and we can become lulled. 
And we can take in anything and think it's acceptable or okay. And that's what happens to so many people. And it takes something of transforming power to wake us up. To say there's something better here. There's something that's even the best. And so when the wine steward takes the water turned wine by Jesus. And he has an awakening. He said, you know what most people would do at this point? Most people would just go along. And continue. And might even serve something that's less than good. Because we've become dull, we've become lulled. And Jesus, when Jesus gets involved in a situation, he makes it the best. He transforms. And he provides an abundance. One of the Psalms, Psalm 34, says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus, who is the bread of life. Jesus, who satisfies our thirst. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, who came to bring life and bring it abundantly. Doesn't want us to settle for what is mundane. Or what will cause us to be dull or lulled. He wants us to experience his transforming power. He wants us to experience the best. And it comes by his grace. So many people say, and you'll hear it, You deserve the best. But you know what the best the world has to offer? It's usually mundane. It's good, maybe. But over time, it turns bad. See, when God's in charge... There's always enough and more. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness. It's amazing how when the Israelites got to the promised land. When sin crept in. They messed it up. And what should have been abundance. And an incredible blessing. became a bad situation. But it's only when we turn to Him. It's only when we experience His grace and His transforming power that we understand what is best. And that's what He wants to do with our lives. Every Sunday, we talk about the wine. 
And the wine is his blood shed for us so that we can experience the best. So that we can experience his transforming power. So that we can be delivered from the sin and corruption and the dullness of our lives. And that's what he wants for us. You do deserve the best. But it only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you responded at this wedding at Cana because you cared about your mom. Just like you did when you were hanging from the cross. When John took her in because he understood. You cared about the family and those around that their needs would be met. And you cared about your apostles that they would believe. And Lord, you care about us. That we would believe. Lord, open our eyes to the power of your transforming grace. Lord, as you did at that first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Help us to see your abundance. Help us to see that what you want for our lives is the best. And Lord, for those here that are dulled or in a lull because of the world, help them to experience that best, your wine, to fill them and warm them and transform them. And Lord, for all of us here, the outpouring of your grace. That we might trust you. That we might know your best day by day. As your people knew your provision in the wilderness. So that we might know your grace as we walk through this world. Fill us with the power of your spirit day by day. That we would live in the abundance of the life that you've provided. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.